Good morning. Thanks for being with us. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here at South City. And I'm excited to get into this new series called Counterfeit Faith. It's a study in the book of James. And you're probably wondering, who are those good-looking devils up there on the, uh, on the screen? Well, the little guy would be me. Hard to recognize with such a wonderful head of hair. But, uh, yeah, that's the little guy's me and the older, the much older two are uh, my brother David and my much older brother Dean, who I'm glad is with us today. I, I love this picture because these are my brothers. Now, my beautiful sister Donna is not in this picture, and I hate that, but I do, and I do like this picture. Uh, to me, it, it just speaks of brotherly love, you know, and the uh, deception of brotherly love in a picture. You know what I mean? It's like, just put your hands around Drew for a minute before you beat him up, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, but I love, you know, the joy of matching fashions for siblings. That's good, too. But I just, I, I love this picture. It reminds me of family, right? If you have a brother or sister, then you know pictures like this. And you know the good and the bad of, of uh, being a brother, especially being a little brother. I was the baby of four. But when I look at this picture, one of the things I don't think about very often is the fact that Jesus could have fit in this picture. When I think about Jesus, I think about him being the Savior. I think about him being, you know, the Messiah. But I don't think about him uh, being a brother, being an older brother of brothers and sisters. Do you? I don't think about Jesus sort of in that family sort of sense. But he, in fact, was an older brother. Mary and Joseph had other children. In fact, the author of our book this morning, in the book of James, is the little brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother of Jesus. And so I just thought I would throw that up there and give us a sense that this is, this is uh, who James was. He's the half-brother. And he had moments like this uh, of enjoying uh, brotherly affection and, and that type of familial, familial setting. Uh, I want to kind of give us some context on a little bit on, on, on James, who he is, so we can kind of know what we're getting into in this series. Um, it took a while for James and his brothers, in fact, and sisters to come to know Jesus. I mean, really, to come to know him as Messiah, to believe that he was the Messiah. Uh, many theologians believe that James didn't even come to faith in Christ until after the re resurrection. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that after Jesus was resurrected, he showed himself to 500 witnesses. And I love that scripture because Paul's kind of saying, and many of them are still alive, and if you need to talk to them about it, go talk to them. I love that. But one of the things that's interesting, after Jesus shows himself to the 500, he then goes and shows himself, it says, to his brother, James. And so even something a little brother can't deny is a resurrected Savior. And so we see James beginning to build a faith in Christ. We see him connected to the body of believers uh, in the upper room before Pentecost with 120. We see his faith growing and eventually we see him become uh, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. But like most families, you know, if you're a sibling of any kind, at some point your brothers or sisters thought you were crazy. Right? I can't believe you took that job. I, I cannot believe he is dating that girl, you know. At some point, siblings think each other is crazy, but uh, Jesus' family is no different. Look with me in Mark 3.21. It says, when his family heard it, this is Jesus speaking, 
and, and talking and preaching. They said when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is Jesus. You guys, he's saying that he's God. But, like, something's off in here. We've got go, to go take him back home. He doesn't feel well, evidently, right? They thought he was crazy. And it even says that at some point in Jesus' gospel ministry that his brothers kind of wanted to uh, take advantage of that. They didn't necessarily believe. It talks about it in John 7, verse 5. They didn't necessarily believe, but they wanted to kind of take advantage of his popularity. It took a while for them to come to faith that Jesus really was the Messiah. But like I said, then James becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And of course, if we talk about the church in Jerusalem, I can't help but think about Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We read it a lot around here because it's such a beautiful example of this community. This early church community, we, we read it, we, we read about the fact that these people, I'm not gonna, they're going to put it up here, but I, you know, I'm not going to read it, but I want to remind you of some things. These are believers growing and walking in faith together. They're, they're, uh, they're walking life in such a way that they're in each other's homes. They're doing communion together. They're sharing all things in common. If there's a need of somebody in the family, it's met. In fact, one scripture says there were no needs in the, in the body. They were taken care of by the family. It was this beautiful, beautiful community that James was the pastor of. But sadly... What was an amazing example of the church and what was an amazing uh, body of believers together turns into a chaotic and frenzied like exodus away from Jerusalem because of the persecution of the church. And now people are running for their lives. Look with me in Acts chapter 8 verse 1. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. He's speaking of Stephen. You remember Stephen was one of the Hellenistic Jews that they had kind of brought together and said, we need some help, and they picked these seven guys, and Stephen was one of those seven guys that was going to help with, in, with such a way that he would help kind of serve the tables and be, help be in charge of distributing food and, and needs. But he was also evidently a really good preacher. And so as he begins to preach, the, the Pharisees and scribes don't like it in Sanhedrin, and they literally stone him and kill him. And this starts the persecution. It says, and Saul proved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This just kind of gives us a little context uh, before we get into the book of James, I want you to get a sense of what the church was going through. He's their pastor. What had been a beautiful community is now just going through craziness and persecution. I found it interesting. Theologians believe that the book of James was written after the death uh, of Stephen as many as 10 to 15 years later after his death. What I think is interesting. And it, we, it's hard, if not impossible, to kind of put these kind of dates on things. But they can have a pretty good idea. So maybe five to ten, who knows? But whatever the case may be, this is when James begins to approach his congregation that's been scattered around all of Judea and outside of it. It's the first book written in the New Testament. I kind of love that idea as well as we've been going through the book of Acts in the summers and we've been talking about the church and, and how God uh, advanced and, ex and his kingdom ex expands 
throughout the world. This is kind of interesting to think of it even chronologically in the sense of the very first letter written to the body of believers is James. James is also one of very few books in the New Testament that's not written to a local congregation necessarily. It's, yes, it's his church, but it's also written sort of to the church at large, which is an interesting aspect of this. They think it was written somewhere in uh, 45 to 47 AD. And one of the things I love about the book is that as you read it, you can sense that it's written from the heart of a shepherd. It's written from the heart of a pastor. Now, it's also in the heart of a pastor. He has some expectations. And so it's written with this desire that people would trust God and obey God and and follow him and, and live in such a way that would honor God, which is the expectation of a pastor, of a shepherd. And so James is sort of a book that has a lot of sort of wisdom kind of concepts and commandment kind of concepts. In fact, there are 55 sort of, sort of commandment-oriented uh, statements in the book of James. It's different than any other book in the New Testament as well. But one thing that we can see as you read it is it's all done in love. There is love drenched throughout this book that you would notice from a shepherd to his people, right? So let's get into it this morning. Can I pray for us as we enter our new series and into this book of James. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this family. Thank you for your word and the encouragement that I know is coming through this letter. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for uh, your work by your spirit even now that's preparing the hearts to receive this message. God, may we take it in. In the spirit of the living God, would you teach us all that we need to know? Forgive us where we fail you, and I pray that you are exalted in all that is said. In Jesus' name, amen. Look with me in the book of James, would you? Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, we're going to read all the way down through verse 18 this morning. Now, what I'm going to do is kind of break it up into sections and kind of explain some things and see what, what James is teaching us through this. The first thing I want you to know is the identity that he, he, he introduces here. Now, for us, I wish he would have said, James, the half-brother of Jesus. That would have been really helpful, right? Because we're not as familiar with James. There are four different James characters in the gospel narrative. And so, it, you know, it's kind of, theologians sometimes have, have wrestled with, which James is this? But one thing that's interesting is James, the writer of this book, didn't seem to think there would be any trouble as he wrote this the receiver, uh, the, the people who would read this, he felt like they would know, oh, this is James. You don't, you don't get any sense that there would be any confusion who this is. This is James, the brother of Jesus. So notice he doesn't, like for me, I would have said that. Plus there's also sort of the name dropping element, you know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? We, you've, all, you, we've all done it, you know. But this kind of makes sense to go, hey guys, it's James brother of Jesus, you know, uh, just letting you know, you know what I mean? It would be so easy to do that, but James doesn't do that. In fact, he goes the opposite direction. He says, James, a servant of God. And the word used here in the Greek is doulos, which means not necessarily even as much servant, but slave. He goes even further. Now, as the youngest of four, I thought I was being treated as a slave before, right? Um, in fact, one of the things that I think is so funny looking back at now is my brother David, this was brilliant of him, honestly, but we, we had a two-story house and we would be upstairs and David would always say, hey, 
I bet you can't beat your time going to get me a glass of iced tea. And I never saw through it. I was so competitive in nature. I was like, you totally beat my last time. He's like, I don't think you can. I'm like, all right, whatever. Go. And I would run downstairs, fix my brother a glass of iced tea, run upstairs, hand it to him, and he never even kept the time. <laughs> we had no ongoing record of time. He just was lying. This is what older brothers do. So, I, yeah, I felt like a slave. But James is not even saying that. Not even saying, uh, you know, he treated no. James is saying, listen, my identity is not in my my, my family nature of, of Jesus. He's saying, this is my privilege to serve God. I have no rights. Dulos means I have no rights. I, I serve, I give away my rights. I am a slave, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James is saying that the blessing in his life and his identity is not in his kinship, but instead in his lordship. Jesus is my Lord. It's much bigger than the fact that he's my brother. It's much bigger than the fact that I grew up with him. He's Messiah, and I am his servant. And then he says this to the audience, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which is kind of a strange greeting. It feels like sort of an ancient greeting, something you would think he's referring to something about uh, the exile in Babylon or something, right? But the reality is, is James is not reaching back in history. He's pointing forward because there's prophecies in uh, Ezekiel and other books that talk about the fact that in the last days, the tribes of Israel will be regathered together. And so James is not kind of speaking backwards, he's speaking forwards. He's saying, you've been dispersed, you're around Judea and Samaria, and you're all over the world in a sense. But God, in the last days, he's pointing to the future, in the last days he's going to regather us. Uh, one of the things that you have to notice about James is that he speaks in a very Jewish tone, which naturally he would, right? I mean, they're coming out of this Jewish faith and just now beginning to enter this Christian faith. This is, this is new, new territory in a sense, right? Um, and so naturally, James speaks with a very Jewish, heavily Jewish tone throughout the book. And he's speaking to primarily Jews, Jewish Christians. These were people who at Pentecost came to know the Lord, uh, so Jews who came to Pentecost. This would, be, this would be Jews at the temple when Peter and John went and healed the crippled man. These are primarily Jews in the, in the early church of Jerusalem. In fact, look with me down here at Acts eleven nineteen. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose uh, over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. It just sort of was the strategy of the preachers in that day and of the people who were scattered to go to the synagogues, go where Jewish people gathered and begin the conversation, Messiah has come. Jesus is that Messiah. That was kind of the conversation. So James is speaking to his people, which is a primarily Jewish audience, and to the greater church, which at that time was primarily a Jewish audience. So the question is, what, is, what does James say to, to this people? What in the world do you say to a people who have been scattered. They're being persecuted and hunted down and dragged out of their homes. On top of that, in this time frame, there's also a great famine in the land. So people are starving. They're being persecuted. And there's unbelievable tension between the Jews and the Romans. 
I mean, it's just a rough time, which may show kind of why he had the inspiration of the Lord to, to speak to his people who were suffering. They're going through difficult moments. And so James wastes no time in his first sermon. Now, the book of James is full of sermons. I mean, just one after another. And so this morning, I want you to understand very clearly, this sermon this morning is about suffering. Okay? It's about suffering. We all go through it at one point or another. Some of us seem to go through different levels of it. But we all walk through it, and James' audience is definitely walking through suffering. Look with me in the next section of Scripture in James. James 1, verse 2 says, Greetings. And he goes right at it and says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what's funny is, as a preacher, um, you don't start with your main point, James. Come on, man. You, right? Usually you work up to it, and then you give them the main point. But James says, no, 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 right out of the chute here, this is the main point. Brothers, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. This is the point of his message. This is it. He's saying, friends, see suffering with eyes of joy. When you're walking through persecution, do so in joy. Endure hardship with joy. When Lori and I first got married uh, a while back, right? This would have been about 24 years ago. We had just gotten married, and I was concerned about finances. We were struggling financially. I was working at a church in uh, Fayetteville, and uh, I was having a hard time. But I had made the decision I was going to go see this financial advisor to see if he could help me figure life out. And I'm 21 years old. I don't know what I'm doing. And he was a really godly and wonderful man. His name was Roger. And I sat down with Roger, and I said, you know, we're just kind of, kind of getting to know each other. And he goes, well, Drew, tell me, how are things, man? What's going on with you and the church and everything? And I said, can I be honest? He said, yeah, of course, with me, you be honest. I said, okay. The pastor doesn't like me. Uh, there's some deacons that hate me, literally. In fact, one of them threatened my life, literally. Um, I feel like they're just, I don't know what they want to do with me. I, they just, I'm, I'm not happy. I'm struggling. Roger started laughing at me. And then I gave him the German Shepherd, like, er? <laughs> like, er, explain yourself before I punch you. You know, that kind of a... And so he, I'm looking at him going, like, and my heart is just sinking. Like, what? What's funny? I'm telling you, I'm struggling. I'm dying here. He goes, man, I'm, I'm not laughing at you. I promise you, I'm not laughing at you. And I'm still going, uh-huh. <laughs> explain. He says, Drew... I want you to see something. I want you to see that God loves you so much that he's brought some difficulty in your life. I want you to see that God loves you so much that he wants to change you from who you are into the image of Jesus, and that can only be done through some suffering. And that these people are exactly what God's going to use. They're the ones God's going to use to help shape you into the image of Jesus, and that makes me smile. I still wanted to punch him in the face. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? When you're walking through something difficult and somebody goes, God's sure going to use this. 
And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm sure he will. It's hard to hear it sometimes, isn't it? But there was something, the Spirit of God inside my heart was listening to Roger say that, and I was, I was agreeing, yeah, I think you're right, but this is hard. I, I could sense in my soul that what he was saying was, was true, but it was hard to hear. This is exactly what James is saying to his people. I know you're struggling. I know you're dying out there, but God is with you, and he loves you enough to use this for your good and my glory. So what is joy? What does it mean? Well, joy is the deepest, most lasting delight, pleasure, satisfaction that we can know. That's what joy is. It's, a, it's deeper than circumstantial happiness. Oh, the day I got Mexican food, woo, and that's a good day for me. I really enjoy those days. But that, that's, not, that's not joy, that's happiness. Joy is looking at my daughters who we struggled for 12 years to conceive and looking at them and going, oh. In fact, Daisy's middle name is Joy because I knew she would be her daddy's joy. Joy is different. It's deeper. It, it doesn't move around with circumstantial things that make us happy or sad in that way. James speaks about uh, joy and he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And what he's talking about here is this image of a silversmith, a goldsmith. What they would do is they'd take chunks of silver and they'd put them in this thing called a crucible. And they would heat this thing up where it's so hot that the silver would melt. And as it would melt, the impurities of the silver would rise to the top. It looked like a spider webby kind of black impurity. And the silversmith can then move it to the side or take it off. And then they would let the silver rest and the silver would harden again. And then they would heat it back up. And it would get so hot that more impurities would come out and the silversmith would move it over and take it off. And he did this over and over again until when it, when it cooled and rested, he could see his reflection in the silver. My friends, that's exactly what God's doing through your suffering. It's the same thing. That's what James says. This is the testing of your faith. This is what he's referring to. Let the silversmith, let God, and know there's going to be heat. There's going to be times of struggle and difficulty. But let the Lord remove the impurity. And let's let that suffering complete its work in you. Until you lack nothing, this is what God wants to do. And that's the image uh, that he's trying to get across. You know, I think when we face suffering, there's going to be three responses in my mind. In this room right now, you're, if we took a, a test somehow, we would all look at suffering differently. For Christ followers who have biblical wisdom and they know God is good, that he loves us, we're going to have this approach. We're going to say there's a greater purpose to my suffering. Would you say that? Greater purpose. Would you say that? Greater purpose. I want to say it again. Greater purpose. We know that there's a greater purpose to our struggle. It's not just right now. You don't just look at it right here. You know, no, no, you got to step back. There's a greater purpose to our pain. Some of us in here would, would not have that outlook. You might have a little of that outlook, but really you're, you're kind of in both worlds. You're saying, I'm not sure if this is going to be good because my, my friends say this and this happened to a guy I know, and you're just tossed back and forth. 
And then there's going to be some of us that fully just turn our backs to God and say, no, I don't trust you. I'll curse you. And I'm just going through hell, and I don't know what to do in my life. This is killing me, God. And, I, and they, they don't acknowledge God at all, and they walk away from him. Three responses to suffering in our lives. But if we trust the Lord, we know he's good, and we're going to know that his suffering and these trials and persecution in our life is going to lead to strength, to steadfastness, and creating in us the image of Jesus. So how do we do this? Pastor James, how are we supposed to do this crazy phrase, count it all joy? What, really? This has been one of the things, it's kind of like Roger saying that to me. It's kind of like this, huh? How do we do that? Do you know what I'm going through? He says it in the very first thing. He says, count. Some of your translations say, consider. And this is what he's saying here. Step back from the suffering and consider that God is going to use this thing in your life to make you more like Jesus. Think about it. Stop. Stop for a minute. Step away from the pain enough to just look at it and go, is God going to use this to make me more like Jesus? Yep. A friend of mine preached a message on this. I listened recent, recently to it, and I loved what he said. He said, this is settling in our hearts what is true. When we walk through uh, suffering, we have to settle in our hearts. We have to consider it and settle it. Okay, I can walk through this because God's going to use it for my good, right? That's how. And then James begins to break down for us in the rest of our text this morning, the how. I don't know about you, but... And I've read, I've read James several times, but I just thought he was like the most ADD disciple on, you know, the face of the earth. I, I, it seemed like he would go from here to there and here to there. The Lord's showing me, no, it, it connects, and that's what I want you to see this morning. It all connects under his message of suffering. Everything we're about to talk about, it all connects under suffering, okay? Think about that as we read this, James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Listen, this is what James is saying to us. He's saying, if in your mind when you face a difficulty and a struggle, and there's no way that you could step back and go, I think God's going to use this. I think God's going to do something in me through this. If, if you and your mind are going, There's no, I, don't, I don't get it, nope. I want you to know this is not a condemning tone of James. He's saying you lack biblical wisdom. This is what he's saying. If you can't consider it joy, he's saying you lack biblical wisdom. So just ask God. He freely gives it. And what's beautiful, he says, he gives it with no shame. He doesn't give it with reproach. Some of your translations say he, he, he doesn't find fault in the fact that you don't have it. Isn't that beautiful? Because some of you are sitting here today and going, yeah, I'm in that camp. I, there's no way God could do that. Use something that I've walked through, that I've, it's been so hard to walk through for his glory. And I'm saying, yes, he can. And if it's hard for you to understand it, just ask for wisdom. But when you ask, he says, ask in faith. When you don't ask in faith, you're just like the ship, like the wave. You're just going from this opinion to that opinion and, and, and this guy to that magazine article. And you're just all over the place. 
But when we ask for wisdom, we ask in faith. God, that means we're going to lean into you, Lord. That means I'm going to take all that I have and all that I believe, and I'm going to lean into the fact that you are real, you love me, and that you're good, and you're going to use this for your glory and my good. Would you give me wisdom? Give me wisdom. All we have to do is ask, but ask in faith without doubting. That, that phrase, double-minded, is really better translated double-souled. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've, I've definitely lived at times a duplicitous life. One foot over here, one foot over there. And this is saying, listen, if you want real wisdom, ask in the kind of faith that you're leaning into God. Right? Let's look at the next section. James 1.9 says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James uses this throughout his book. This kind of dichotomy of lowly and, and rich or poor and rich. And he uses it in different ways. What he's saying here is let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Somebody may say, well, well, if he's lowly, what kind of exaltation does he have? Humility brings us close to Jesus. When our identity is connected to Christ alone and not something we think we've done, the Bible says that he exalts the humble. In fact, that's what James says. James 4, 6 says that very thing. It says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if, if we can have humility, if our identity can be in the fact that we know Christ and that's enough, then he will exalt us. He'll give us that exaltation. We can boast in nothing but him. But then he uses this, this other side and says, but the rich man in his humiliation. And what he's saying is when, when your identity is in what you have or what you've done, <laughs> it's going to fade. It won't last there's nothing there. Another way that, this could, that he could be saying this is both of these people could know Christ. He could say the lowly knows Christ and the rich knows Christ. And to the world, knowing Christ is his humiliation. He should boast in that. It could go either direction. But the thing that we need to, to take from this moment is to understand riches are fleeting. What we have, titles, position, all that stuff is fleeting. It's going to go away. But our identity in Christ will always be ours. It's not something we've earned. It's not something we've worked for. It's something Jesus has given us as a gift in our salvation. Our identity has to be in Christ, not in what we have or we don't have. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, this is interesting. If it sounds kind of really familiar to you, uh, to the first verse, it's because it's, he intended it that way. Theologians call this kind of technique an inclusio. That's basically where the writer starts with one kind of an idea, and then he wants to bookend it on the back end to really make sure you understand it. James is saying this. Yeah, I talked about it in the first. Count it all joy, right? And now he's giving the why. If we live that way, here's the why. It's because blessed is the man. If you do it, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those 
who love him. James is giving us the why. Of course, we, we've talked about this before. Who are the people who love God? Well, Jesus said, if you love me, in John 14, 21, and uh, John 14, 15, John 15, 14, those who love me are the ones who are going to obey my commands. In fact, Jesus even uses this phrase about the crown of life in Revelation chapter 2. He says, if you endure, I'm going to give you the crown of life. I, I don't, listen, I don't know if he's talking about something that goes on your head. I don't know, it, that doesn't, doesn't really matter. Let me tell you what he is talking about. He's talking about life. He wants to crown you. He wants to give you life. Dee talked about it this morning in Roots in John 10.10. He said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to bring you what? Life. When you remain steadfast, blessed is the man because ultimately he will receive life. And God never wastes our suffering. Is this in Romans 8, 28? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. James talks about the fact that he's, we're going to get a crown of life for those who love him. And now Paul's saying, he knows for those who love him, God's going to work all this stuff together. <laughs> he's going to somehow make sense of all of it. And he's going to use it in our lives and for his glory. Let's move to the next section. James 1.13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So is it true that God tempts us? No. Is it true that God tests us? Yes. I don't know about you, sometimes I, I, I'm a history and discovery channel. I, I just kind of stay there. When I ever watch TV, I don't watch a lot of it, but I usually go to those places. And they have this show called Forged in Fire. Have you seen that? This, uh, yes. Um, this, um, this, is a man, this is a man show. There's fire, there's steel, there's slicing things. Ah, men. Yeah. So, what they do is they, they make these swords. I don't know anything about making a sword, but I understand you got to heat it up, right? Kind of the same kind of crucible concept. And you got to put it in some oil or something, and you go back and forth. And the idea is that it strengthens the sword. But you don't really know if a sword is strong, do you? Until you what? You got to test it. And these guys who got the swords, they're like, all their faces are all, when the guys go to hit the log or whatever, they're all like, I don't know. They don't know if their sword's going to be strong or not. And when it hits, sometimes a sword breaks, and you need to know that before you go into battle, right? That's kind of the concept. God wants to know that you're growing. <laughs> he wants you to know that you're growing. He wants to use trials to test you, to strengthen you, so that you have steadfastness. So yes, sometimes God tests us, but he never tempts us. Have you ever noticed this in the middle of really stressful seasons in your life? That can be some of the most tempting seasons as well. I, I can't, I'm, it's unreal where if you're walking through a really stressful season in your life, sometimes it seems like the enemy comes right in just to test you. Right? Think about Jesus. If he was weak ever as a human, it's like this would have been the moment when he was fasting 40 days and Satan comes right after, you know, to, to tempt him. But James is saying, 
Never make the mistake to think that God is doing the tempting. He doesn't. Who does the tempting? Your own sinful nature does the tempting. He says, don't be lured away. I couldn't help but think about you fishermen. You know, there's some amazing technology in fishing now, you know, these lures. They can make these little things look so real. So, and I don't fish that much, but I do. I'm just kind of blown away with the technology that this thing looks like a frog jumping on the water. Or it looks like a fish swimming at the top of the, it's unreal. And what's funny is the, the fish underneath, the hope is that they think this is something authentic enough to fool them to come up and bite the bait. Friends, that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. He's just, he's just dragging something along in front of you. Come on. And you think it's authentic. You think it's real. You think it's something that will actually satisfy your soul. And it won't. It's fake. And don't you know that big bass is disappointed when he thinks he's going to have a really yummy meal of that frog. And then he puts his lip around a steel hook. And it's too late. That's exactly what James is saying here. He says, sin gives birth to death. Can you make it any more plain? This is all sin does. It never delivers what you think it will. It will never satisfy our souls. Only Jesus can do that. And yet we want to just be dragged away. I, I thought about the fact, you know, on social media, there's these, this stuff called clickbait, you know. For the older people, uh, that's like a, a video of me included. That's like a video or an article or something that you may not really want to read, but it's enough interesting that you're kind of like, okay, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the bait, right? And you click this thing, and then it leads you to another video or another article, and before you know it, you're someplace you really didn't want to be, right? It's kind of like this, you're being lured away. That's exactly what our sin nature does. And it happens, listen, it happens in suffering. When you're walking through suffering, that, you need to be aware. If you're walking through a difficult season right now, be heightened in your sense of awareness that temptation from your own soul and from the enemy is coming. Don't be deceived. In fact, that's exactly what James says, James 1, 16. Don't be deceived. Listen to the way he speaks to his people. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't take that trap. Don't take that bait. For every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, James is, is he's, he's begging his people. My beloved brothers, my beloved sisters, please don't take that bait. Anything that leads you to death, he's trying to say, is not God. If you can trace that to death, that is not God. God leads us to life, right? And life more abundantly. God is a good giver of gifts, not of death gifts. He's a giver of life gifts. Don't be deceived by what the world is throwing at you. Trust the Lord. Trust his good gifts. This is coming down from the Father of lights. What he's saying here is this. He's speaking of heavenly lights, sun, moon, stars, and in their regular faithfulness. As much as you can count on the sun to rise in the morning, you can count on the faithfulness of God to be good. That's what he's saying. You can count on it. It's not going to change. 
He's going to continue to be good. He's going to be a good, good father over and over again. Don't be deceived with the junk of the world that will lead you to death. God gives good gifts. Can I, can I just tell you that, you know, I'm, <laughs> I've heard the old preachers use this phrase. And uh, it's a good phrase because it stuck with me. I want to say it to you because I think it'll stick with you and I hope it'll make you think. I've heard it several times. I'll say it again. It's, it's this. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. Keep you longer than you wanted to stay and it'll make you pay more than you ever wanted to pay. James is pleading with his people. It's not what you think it is. The enemy wants to lead you farther than you want to go. Make you stay longer than you want to pay and make you pay more than you wanted to pay. Trust the giver of good gifts, the Father. And his greatest gift, of course, is what? It's Jesus. His salvation, so he says in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he's sort of doing another little technique here. What he's saying is sin gives birth to death, but God gives birth through salvation to life. See that little technique he's using? It says brought forth. Some of, you, some of your t- translation says give birth. He brought us forth. He birthed us. In other words, we are saved. We know Jesus because of what he calls the word of truth. What is that? That's the gospel of Jesus. He brought us forth in salvation through the gospel of Jesus. And then he tells his people, how exciting is this? We are some of the first fruits. Uh, Some of us garden. And I'm not good enough in gardening to be able to, Tim's probably could do this. You go out into your garden and you can see some of the the first vegetables or something. go, oh, it's going to be a good, good season. I can't, I don't know, you know. But this is what he's saying. We are just the beginning. We are the first fruits of what God is going to do around the world. God is going to redeem his people through Jesus and through the gospel of Jesus. And we are the first fruits of that mission. Listen, friends, we all want joy. As I close. We all want satisfaction. We all want life. But there's not many of us that want to go through the difficulty that we need to go through in order to get there. (laughs) If there's a way to go through it in an easy way, we would take that 100% of the time, right? Jesus himself even prayed, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, your will. And friends, you might pray the same prayer through the middle of the struggle you're walking through. God, is it possible that I don't have to do this? Is it possible that I don't have to feel this and and deal with this? If so, that'd be great. (laughs) But not my will. Your will be done. Friends, the reality is you will not become like Christ unless you walk through suffering. When I was in college, you know, I looked through the little, I don't know what you call a syllabus or whatever the things. You look through the classes in order to see what you got to take in order to get a degree, you know. And I remember those two words that scared me half to death. College algebra. I don't even like to say it. It's painful. 
I didn't want to go up through college algebra, but I wanted a degree. It was going to be, I, didn't, I just didn't even want to go there. It took me four ever-loving semesters to get through college algebra, but I did it. Listen, that's kind of the way it is with suffering. I don't want to walk through suffering. Some of you are new believers in Jesus. And my heart hurts for you in the sense that I hate that you have to walk through suffering like the rest of us do as believers. But like Roger, I'm kind of smiling too. Because he's going to use it for a greater purpose. That's his promise. This is what Paul said in Romans 5, verse 2. He said, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we have joy. We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul knows the working of suffering and that it's not possible to know Jesus the way we need to unless we walk through it. But we're not alone and I want to encourage you with this. Jesus himself walked through suffering for you and for me. Look at this, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which in close, uh, clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, what? The joy. Who for the joy was set before him, he endured the cross for me. He was willing to walk through that pain and suffering for the joy. Joy's coming on the other side of your tribulation. You gotta endure. You gotta hang in there and you can even smile in the middle of it. People may think you're crazy and just tell them, God's doing something in me. He's, he's changing me into the image of Jesus. How do we do it? We consider it, we step back. And if we can't imagine how it's possible, we say, God, would you please Give me biblical, godly wisdom to see that you will use suffering for my good and for the process that you're working in me. But have faith when you ask. Don't be washing back and forth. Don't do it. Find your identity in Christ alone. Don't be tempted in the middle of the struggle. Don't let your sin nature drag you away from what God's trying to do in your life. And know this, God's a good giver. He's a good, good father. And the suffering is not indicative of the fact that he's good. Sometimes the suffering makes us go, wow, how could God do that? No, no, no. The suffering is the very thing he's going to use to exalt you, to bless you, to encourage you, to make you more like Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we love you. We're excited about this letter from Pastor James. God, we pray that you would use it in our lives to know you more. Father, my heart really is, is broken and concerned for so many in our audience right now that they're walking through suffering. Some of them have uh, enough of a relationship with you that they can trust, God, that you're going to use it. 
for a greater purpose, and yet some are going, I don't see it. Lord, would you help them to ask for wisdom and faith? And would you use this season to make them more like you? Father, some of them need to come to this altar and, and pour out their fear and their doubt, and they need to ask in faith for that wisdom. But God, would you continue to do a work in our church in the middle of whatever we face, whatever we walk through, that we would look more like you by your grace, you suffering, God, to change us into who you want us to be. In Jesus' precious name.